Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. One share price that's not entirely flat is Nike. Nike shares up about a quarter of a percentage point after uh, Tiger Woods won yet again, although after uh, more than 10 years of a hiatus of winning a major golf tournament. Joining us now to talk about how it, this is wonderful news for his sponsors is Eben Novi Williams joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. So Eben, first let's just talk about the number of sponsors who stuck with Tiger Woods through an incredibly tumultuous period. Who stuck with him? Who dropped away? Yeah, it's not a long list of companies, right? It, Nike is one of them. Um, and un, uh, Upper Deck, the memorabilia, is the other one. So those are the only two that stuck with him. You have a long list of companies like Accenture, AT&T, Gillette, Gatorade, companies, Tag Heuer, that either dropped him or you know refused to renew him when their sponsorship came up, right? So so it's been 10 year, long years for Tiger Woods and the companies backing him are a bit different, you know? So so Nike and Upper Deck are still there. Bridgestone makes the the balls he uses. TaylorMade makes the clubs he uses. Monster Energy is is the logo on the bag for people who watched uh, over the weekend. Uh, so it's a, it's a kind of a whole different stable of, uh, of endorsers outside of Nike, you know, which has been the mainstay and the company that I think people, you know, most closely associate with Tiger. So ha- have we been able to quantify what the impact was? Like what was Tiger's, you know, sponsorship income back in the day when he had those A-listers? to maybe today where maybe it's not so many A-listers. Yeah, it's not. He certainly, he's he's still making money off the course, obviously. Okay. You know, um, his relationship with Nike was once a $30 million a year relationship. That's changed a bit because Nike has, you know, refu- they, they no longer make golf equipment. So Nike doesn't make the ball and, and the clubs and, and the bag anymore. Um, and, and yeah, the he's probably not being paid, you know, in total what he was when he was making, what, $60 million a year off the course. Um, but, you know, he has a very successful... Uh, course design business. He still has a number of sponsors that pay him well. I imagine the fact that he just won the Masters is not going to hurt him uh, in any regard in that way either. So, you know, it's, his portfolio is not what it used to be, but I, he's not struggling for cash right now. Right? I'm curious, though, you know, beyond just Tiger Woods and Nike, I'm wondering what kind of audience uh, these golf tournaments get because my understanding is that the the population of people watching these has been going down and getting older. Yeah, it's funny. Ten years ago, you know, we we always talked about you know the Tiger bump. What happened? You know, the 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 amount of people that turned in just to watch golf only when Tiger Woods was playing well. And eleven years later, we're we're having the same conversations. Golf is still reliant on this one athlete, and it's great for golf that he's back. Right? If you're the golf channel, if you're CBS, anyone who's going to televise a golf, a professional golf tournament in the next couple of months, you are thrilled by what just happened because people are going to turn in to watch uh, Tiger Woods to see if he can do this again. The bigger underlying issue is the, the sport still, you know, is reliant on a 43 year old with a bad back right. who is who is not going to be this good in another 11 years. Right. The, right. There is a, there is a finite end to Tiger Woods dominance. It's amazing that he got back to this stage, but you know, yep. you can make an argument that it's not great for golf that, that he is still the number one biggest draw. Well, a lot of winners came out of yesterday's performance by Tiger Woods, but one of the losers, which is the sports betting business in general. What happened? The bookies had the wrong side of this trade. I yeah, guess. it's funny. They, you know, Tiger Woods, just because of his popularity is almost always the most bet golfer in the field. 
And when Tiger Woods was bad, that was a great, <laughs> a great business opportunity for, for sports books. And, you know, now that he won, you know, it was a bad business opportunity. The William Hill had a single bet that they paid out $1.2 million on. It's the biggest single golf bet liability they've ever had, taking bets in the U.S. FanDuel lost $2 million. DraftKings was out a million and a half. A lot of sports books took a big bath on this. Again, it doesn't come close to offsetting the money they've made off of Tiger in the past 10 years. Um, but yeah, in general, being a sports book is a pretty darn good business model. <laughs> Occasionally, you get burned by individual events, and this was certainly one that, that burned them. Interesting, but uh, certainly a lot of winners uh, yesterday, and uh, you know, from the broadcast networks, just just you know, uh, to the sponsors, and you know, I won't be surprised at all to see some of those A-list sponsors who who left Tiger Woods when he had those troubles uh, come flocking back, because um, you know, we could just tell if you think about the. Uh, if you follow the game of golf and you just kind of look at your Twitter feed or your Facebook, it was just exploding yesterday uh, with Tiger Woods in contention at the Masters. So it's a it's a whole nother dynamic, as Eben uh, was mentioning. So, uh, uh, Eben, we appreciate it. Eben Noby Williams from Bloomberg News bringing us the latest on everything that is Tiger Woods and golf. He is back. Well, we are right smack in the middle of earnings season for the big banks. We had JP Morgan on Friday. Today, Goldman Sachs and Citigroup, a mixed bag across the board. To dig in to some of these results of what it means for the big money center banks, we welcome Ken Leon. Ken is Global Director of Industry and Equity Research at CFRA Research. He joins us uh, on the phone from New York. So, Ken, thanks so much for joining us. What are some of the takeaways sure. that you are seeing from some of these first wave of big bank earnings? Uh, J.P. Morgan hit it out of the park. You know, the expectations for all these banks was dismal performance for the first quarter. Um, March really helped J.P. Morgan, and it provides some glimmer of hope, you know, for certainly uh, Citi and, and Goldman Sachs today. You know, the capital markets uh, were froze. The government freeze really hurt the uh, underwriting pipeline, both equity and debt. And the IPO uh, market really just started to click in March. So uh, we think what, what's unusual here is first quarter tends to be the strongest quarter for the banks. Um, and it looks to be a base quarter with improvement every quarter in 2019. Ken, it seems like big U.S. banks are being put to the test. How much can they diversify away from trading revenue? Because that has not been the driver that it once was. So can you give them a grade? How are they doing in terms of turning to uh, advisory revenue or consumer uh, consumer profitability? So the, the banks are pretty much agents and not principal businesses where they invest for the house. And from a regulatory standpoint and the uh, capacity of how much capital is needed for trading, uh, they have been de-risking the last few years. And even on the Goldman call today, look, we have, we have a new management, uh, a new management now led from former executives in investment banking, not trading as before. And they're going to size down further FIC, which is the fixed income currency and commodity business, so they get efficiencies and higher returns. Uh, when you look at the other banks, um, 
the one area that's the bread and butter for the the large commercial banks is treasury because these tie directly into their corporate relationships and corporate lending. So I think um, directionally, um, none of these banks want to put that much capital. Um, We also had low investor activity. Uh, We had low volatility as measured by the VIX. All put that together, you had uh, high upper team negative declines in trading. So you want to be in other businesses that you have confidence can grow. So, Ken, as a former Wall Streeter, I always take a look at the cost line for some of these big investment banks because that usually goes to headcount and to compensation, two things near and dear to my heart as a former Wall Streeter. But I see for Coleman Sachs down 20 percent firm-wide expenses. Um, Is that just the people side of the business? So um, part of it is the early stages of efficiencies from heavy technology investing. Um, it's not, it is absolutely not major headcount cuts. Yet what's interesting for Goldman, 35, 40% of their workforce is technology. And that's what's driving their platforms in the business. Um, for the other banks, um, the efficiency ratios seem to be more of a um, fading indicator that no one has, none of the banks have conviction to say that we're going to go from low 60% to low 50% in the next two years, as they did for several quarters, not this one. Uh, and even asked that question, Citigroup today, they kind of backed off because they're just, there is that uncertainty just about global economy and the capital markets. But that's generally part and parcel for these banks. Ken, uh, one notable factor also was Citigroup's win on bond trading revenues. They actually uh, posted an increase year over year after it expected decrease. And uh, the other banks that have reported have all uh, seen declines in their year over year comps for bond trading. I'm just wondering, where is Citi getting the volumes? What, what, how did they eke this out? They have a very... Um strong global network in terms of working with corporate U.S. treasuries. And they're, they're not doing it on the high-risk side of the curve, which would be derivatives or any futures. It's, it's mostly um, plain vanilla treasury services. Um, and that con- uh, continues to be a strength for a city, also for J.P. Morgan. What's interesting is Goldman Sachs really wasn't in those parts of fixed income trading. Uh, and they have increase their headcount to go there and take market share. So can, when I think about Citigroup, I'm looking at the stock here. It's up almost 30% year to date. How is this company positioned globally from a franchise perspective? It seems like they have, uh, you know, they had the really had a tough time coming out from the financial crisis, but they've seen pretty solid. So they had a, a terrific 2018 and, and the first quarter as a continuum, um, and that's reflected in the stock. We raised our target price to 70 from 65 this morning. Uh, we do feel um, that City um, is getting the most out of its global footprint. We have a whole recommendation on City, a buy on Goldman, simply because we think with City, it's more now dependent on the global economic environment. Uh, They had flat first quarter in Europe as well as in Asia. Uh, Mexico and Latin America is another very important franchise for City, and it's likely to be flatter, low single digit. Look at Goldman Sachs. You got a new management team on board. There's a delta for improvement on earnings coming from strategic moves, 
across the board in terms of realigning fixed income trading. Um, they're also aligning to get more business and investment banking by hiring hundreds of investment yeah. bankers for small companies. Right. Never heard of that for decades. <laughs> well, Never. it seems like that's where uh, the profitability is. Ken Leon, thank you so much for being with us. Global Director of Industry and Equity Research at CFRA Research in New York. Well, there's a great story out on the Bloomberg terminal today about taxes. Yes, taxes can be interesting. Uh, Basically, the gist here is basically President Trump gave most Americans a big tax cut last year. But the problem is they did not notice it. In fact, just one fifth of taxpayers believe that their taxes have been cut. So to get a sense of what happened here with the messaging, uh, we welcome Lars Davidson, one of the reporters on this story. Lars, a congressional tax reporter for Bloomberg Tax. Uh, she's on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. today. Laura, thank you so much for joining us. So again, there was a tax cut. Not a lot of people believe there was a tax cut. So what happened with the messaging? So really, there were there were two big missteps that, that Republicans made here. And one is that the Democrats' argument uh, that this was going towards the wealthy and towards large corporations uh, was just more salient with voters. Um, they saw the big, big tax breaks go to corporations. And when they saw the, the changes uh, that were going to, to them as individuals, it, it didn't seem as big. The second thing is the way people got their tax cuts. So instead of getting a big refund at the end of the year, which is what many people expected, they got uh, basically they paid less throughout the year. So there was less taken out of their paycheck. But in most cases, once you spread that out, over uh, over you know twenty four twenty six paychecks over the year it was you know twenty thirty forty dollars it wasn't that much so by the time that people got to you know today to April fifteenth uh, they either had a much smaller refund or in some cases they owed money because they had too much taken out over the year and uh, you know even though they they ended up getting more money they they still felt like they owed more so what is the truth here as far as who got the biggest tax cuts right because if you're saying that the Democrats kind of won on their messaging did they win on the facts. Well, it it really depends. So you look, our our tax system is progressive. So that means that there are higher rates for people um, at the higher end of the income spectrum. So people who who make more uh, also pay more, but they also got a bigger tax cut in comparison overall. So it's a little bit tricky to say, you know, who definitively won and lost. But particularly in a lot of uh, states where where Democrats are who are already uh, disinclined to, to like this tax cut, New York, New Jersey, they were also limited by the state and local tax deductions. You used to be able to write off all of your state and local taxes. That's now capped at $10,000. So lots of voters in the, in the Northeast and California are finding that they, they actually saw a tax increase. Overall, it's a relatively small portion. You know, about 5 10% of people actually had their taxes increase. But uh, they're in mostly in Democratic-leaning places, and they feel that they were targeted by this law. Boy, you can count me as one of those people who paid lost on those SALT uh, deductions. So uh, here being the metro New York area. Um, But Laura, Trump's top economic advisor, Larry Kudlow, last week, I believe, said that the tax cut package had largely already paid for itself. Is that accurate? That is not. Uh, we have seen that there's been some economic feedback from the law, but it's really only paid for a fraction of the $1.5 trillion uh, that this cost over a decade. And once you throw on you know, what it costs to service this debt, um, it, it's even more than that $1.5 trillion, approaching almost $2 trillion. So the, the, that's simply simply not the case. And and when you look at um, Republicans have been a little bit um, inconsistent on their messaging about this. You know, at, at times they've said, oh, look, we never said this was going to pay for it for itself. Kudlow said it would pay for itself. Uh, but the fact 
facts and the numbers that have so far been coming in have shown that it has not paid for itself and it probably will not over the course of the next decade. Laura, I want to go back to the SALT, the state and local tax deductions that were eliminated basically or capped at $10,000. Is there any evidence that uh, residents of some of the high tax states, New York, New Jersey, California, have been moving to lower tax states in response to this tax law change? There has not been great evidence yet, and we're only, you know, a year in, um, and it would be a pretty drastic move to to move somewhere um, across the country just for a lower tax rate. On the margins, you're seeing a little bit of that, in particular on the higher end, you're seeing um, condo developers and, and real estate agents who are trying to target some of these high earners and convince them to move to Miami or, you know, in California to move across the state line to Nevada. Uh, so far, that that's not necessarily going to be um, economists are, are looking at this, not a huge uh, driving factor, just because there's so many reasons to be in New York. Your business is there. Your kids are there. Your, your network is there. Uh, that that uh, And New York State also makes it very hard to leave. They uh, will look very closely if you, you know, have a home in Florida. They look at how many nights you're spending in Florida versus New York and, and really sort of this teddy bear test of where does your teddy bear at night do? Is your, do you have your dentist? Do you have your, your is church that a or your CPA synagogue? Term? That is, uh, that's a very technical term. You can look that up in the tax code. Okay. Just real quickly, what is the, what do you think the Democrats are going to do here with this tax issue. Are they going to try to use this as something to really be a positive for them and go against the uh, the Republicans in 2020? So far, they were successful in that in, in 2018 and really ran hard on the tax issue. And, and you've seen so far uh, a lot of Democrats campaigning on, on raising taxes, particularly for the wealthy. So, you know, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders have talked about, you know, expanding the estate tax or, or paying um, uh, you know, having the the wealth the wealthy pay a, a, an annual tax on their on their total wealth, and and they're saying, look, this will pay for you know um, costs for childcare or for free college tuition or Medicare for all, and that's where they're really um, seeing uh, that these ideas are polling really well. You know, in some right. cases, 50, 60 percent. Laura Davison, thank you so much for being with us. Laura Davison is congressional tax reporter for Bloomberg Tax, joining us from Washington D.C. Well, it looks like the on-again, off-again trade talks between the U.S. and China are most certainly back on again. To get the latest, we welcome Mike McDonough. Mike is the chief economist for financial products at Bloomberg. He joins us live here in the Bloomberg 1130 studios in New York. So, Mike, is China just going to buy more soybeans from us or is there something more substantive coming down the pike? You know, I think I think we're going to see something far more substantive than uh, China buying more soybeans. I think the reason we haven't seen a deal yet, well, there's many reasons, uh, but one of them is they are trying to do something that is a little bit more holistic, that answers for some of the uh, investor access into China, uh, some of the intellectual property uh, issues, uh, and of course, you know, China buying more stuff. China buying more stuff is actually the easiest thing to tackle, and if that was it, this would have been done months ago. It's trying to figure out how do you open up more of China's economy to foreign investors? How do you deal with intellectual property? And what, what is the enforcement mechanism put in place to make sure that um, that happens? Well, talking about the enforcement mechanism, Steve Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary in the United States, said over the weekend at the IMF meetings that the U.S. is open to facing repercussions if it doesn't live up to its commitments in a potential trade deal with China. So this actually speaks to the mechanism of enforcement. And my question is, 
How significant is that statement by Treasury Secretary Mnuchin? You know, I know there had been some debate over what, um, if it was decided China wasn't following through uh, with part of the deal, what would happen? The U.S. wanted to put sanctions back on China. Uh, China wanted to be able to reciprocate. Uh, I think that that was a line in the sand that had been drawn that the U.S. was saying no. Uh, So it would indicate that there has been some progress made on that front. But I'd be really, really interested to hear President Trump's comments on that suggestion uh, uh, to see if they're aligned there. So, Mike, when you take a look at the both sides, I'm, I'm thinking about China here. Who is more incented to get a real deal done as a one as opposed to one that is more of a kind of a headline like deal? Uh, well, I think, you know, China would like to see a deal that kind of makes this go away. Uh, this problem. Uh, but I think, you know, what, what China's worried about right now is not just getting this deal done. They're looking further ahead. And I think they're worried about 2020. You know, what if the economy starts to slow in 2020? What is the situation going to be, right? If they pass a holistic deal, you have these enforcement mechanisms in place. Uh, will the bluster continue from the administration uh, as, you know, if, if growth is slowing ahead of the election and China becomes another target despite this deal? So I think that is a bit of a concern. I think that that on the U.S. side, the trade negotiators, uh, the lighthousers uh, of, of, of the administration, um, they have a certain bar they'd like to see. They view this as an opportunity to do something meaningful with China. I think, though, as growth has slowed in the U.S. a little bit or become, yeah, as growth has slowed, uh, markets have become a little bit more sanguine. I think that you have... Um, the, the President Trump's bar may have actually gone down uh, below that of his own trade negotiators. That's why I was saying it would be interesting to get his comments on uh, Stephen Mnuchin's statement of uh, the China being able to put tariffs on the U.S. if they don't uh, follow through with the deal. I, I, it, it's all very interesting to me that. Well, uh, here, here's my here's my question. I'm trying to understand the China-U.S. trade negotiations in the context of the latest salvos with the European Union and the United States. And evidently, uh, talks are ongoing between those two regions to try to come to some sort of agreement on everything from uh, whiskey to uh, motorcycles to wine and cheese. I'm just trying to figure out why is that happening at the same time that we're also hearing about the China talks? Well, it's interesting, right? I think that the Europeans are concerned at the moment that if there is closure on the U.S.-China trade talks, that they are going to become the next target of the administration. And I guess you're starting to see some some signs of that. So, um, you know, maybe it's a precursor for something more uh, more direct targeting Europe, but we're, we're all going to have to kind of wait and see, I think. Yeah. Uh, Mike, wonder if you could give your comments or your thoughts on this, but it seems like, you know, that the tariffs as it relates to China actually worked. It brought them to the table and it has them maybe negotiating in a way that's maybe a little bit more than we even anticipated initially. Yeah. So, I mean, I was talking about the bar in the U.S. I think the bar for China also went down, right? So when when the trade war really started, you were starting to see a deceleration of China's economy. It wasn't due to the trade war. Uh, it was due to uh, the deleveraging cycle they were having at home. They misjudged the impact that would have. But then coming into this year, uh, you had that slowdown. Then you had the kind of the bad sentiment of, OK, we are going into a trade war. So it was kind of a double whammy. Uh, so they were eager uh, to come to the table and maybe make a little bit more concessions than they had before. So, I mean, really, 
both sides' bars are lower. I think that it, it, it is imminent, in my view, uh, that we do get a deal. I think that the reason we don't have a deal yet, uh, it, it's unrelated, but it's interesting. When you look at when President Trump uh, had the summit uh, with Kim Jong-un for North Korea when he went to Hanoi, I think everyone was surprised that he just kind of walked away from that. Everybody had assumed work had been done. There'd at least be some sort of friendly handshake and it would end on positive terms. For the Chinese, um, they're fearful that if they send President Xi to Mar-a-Lago and that repeats, that would not that would be a very unacceptable outcome for the Chinese. So I think that they're making sure before that date is set, every I is dotted and every T is crossed. So for me, the moment that date is set, in my mind, I think that means a deal's been done and they're just going to kind of go through the motions. Mike McDonough, thank you so much for being with us. Always love having you. Mike McDonough, chief economist uh, covering financial products for us here at Bloomberg, joining us in our interactive brokers studio. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.